0: Good morning. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 as we continue our study through the gospel of Matthew as we reach the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Mark was right to acknowledge and pray that there would be some truth from the sermon this morning because this text, not just this text, all of the Sermon on the Mount, we've spent. Some 30 weeks now through this text, and we have still only scratched the surface. And there is so much more to be gleaned. And yet, even in the time we've spent, as, uh, on the one hand, as little as it feels like we've been able to grasp, on the other, as much as we've been able to grasp, there is so much for us to apply to our lives, to begin asking ourselves, how do our lives measure up to the standard that has been set before us? Texas morning will be familiar to you, most likely. Uh, it's a common one of there at the end of Matthew 7 of the wise and the foolish man, the man who built his house upon the rock. And uh, you know and may remember and recall that children's song, and the rains came down, the floods came up. In 2018, Hurricane Michael, not that long ago at all, a Category 5 storm it struck the Florida panhandle. And it decimated the, the coastline that it hit. It was, it was pretty surreal, the damage that was created. As reporters began to walk the beach, as they began to survey the scene, you know, being the first there because you things know, show destruction, then you can get a lot more viewers. They started to go around and they came across a, across a house that was still standing. Not only was it still standing, but at first glance, it appeared entirely unscathed by the storm. Every other home around it had been obliterated, was in splinters. Most of them just completely washed away. All that was left was the semblance of a foundation or maybe some pile of sticks that used to be the house. While the home had suffered some minor cosmetic damage and required a couple of new windows and a set of stairs, the damage was so minimal that within just a few days, it was being used as the staging area for news and search and rescue workers. And when persons went to the owners and asked, Why is it that your house is still standing? They answer that they had gone to painstaking detail to follow every guidance and every instruction there was for hurricane-proofing a home. They did not settle for the minimum requirements. They did not cut corners. But they built it to withstand even the strongest possible hurricane. As a result, their home... Remained while every other home had been wiped away. This morning, as we look at this text that is somewhat familiar to many of us, we want to consider what type of person am I? And we don't want to answer this hastily, but we want to carefully ask am I the wise builder or the foolish builder? How do I become more like the wise builder that I may glorify God in this life and be welcomed through the narrow gate into the kingdom of heaven? Read along with me as we read this this familiar text beginning in verse 24 of Matthew 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell. The floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Pray with me. Father, as we come to the text this morning in this conclusion, which really stands for us as a call this morning, for whether we will hear and obey and build our lives upon the rock of this teaching and this truth that we have spent these past number of weeks studying. May we be faithful doers of your word as we hear and as we proclaim your message. We thank you for the words that we've sung. We thank you for the fellowship that you've granted in your spirit that we've been able to enjoy thus far this morning. As we come together and study your word, would you knit our hearts together that we would look for ways to not only obey you and serve you in our own lives, but come alongside and serve and love one another as we together as one body glorify you and seek to glorify you. We pray these things in your name, amen. We've reached, as I've said, the end of our study through the Sermon on the Mount, and our text this morning centers upon not being hearers only but doers of Jesus's words. Whereas two weeks ago prior to our little parentheses we had for Easter that we celebrated last week, two weeks ago we looked at the insufficiency of simply or only professing right doctrine when it was not backed up by obedience or that analogy of fruit in our lives. And this morning we're We're going to see another insufficiency. In this case, it is insufficient to simply and only hear right doctrine when it's not backed up, again, by obedience. Jesus' closing reminder to all his disciples and the crowds gathered about on that mountainside is that a true disciple must be a doer of his words, not merely one who hears and professes right teaching and doctrine. Certainly, sitting under right doctrine, choosing right doctrine... Going to a church that faithfully teaches scripture, these are good and right things. But hear me carefully when I say that is not enough for a disciple of Jesus Christ. You personally must be a doer of the word. A number of the women in the church are working through a study of James. And they've observed as James teaches us the very same thing. He just inverts the order. He starts in chapter one by reminding us that we are taught to not be hearers only, which is what we see in our text this morning. That no matter how good of a teaching you have, no matter how much you read your Bible, if you are not practicing it, it is no source of assurance or comfort when trials or judgment comes. And then in chapter 2, James says what we looked at a couple of weeks ago, in James 2, 14 through 26, we are reminded that we cannot simply profess that we believe and have faith. It must be accompanied by obedience. If you're not practicing it, there's no assurance. There's no comfort. There shouldn't be. Rather, you're like someone who's standing there with the label on a medicine bottle, Just sitting there reading it, waiting to get better without actually taking it. Or maybe you're loudly proclaiming that you trust doctors, but you refuse to ever visit one and still expect to be healed. This type of Christianity and claim to discipleship is empty, it is false, and it is ultimately dangerous. It's dangerous to you, it's dangerous to me. So let's look closely at Jesus' words here in verses 24 through 27 before looking at Matthew's concluding comments on this entire sermon in verses 28 through 29. You see there at the beginning of verse 24, it begins with a therefore. And I'm sure you've heard it said, whenever you see a therefore, you look to see what the therefore is there for. It's a reminder that Jesus is calling us to look back at what has been previously stated. Now the question is, what and how far is he asking us to look back? Does he want us to look just a few verses and a few comments? Or does he want us to go back all the way to the beginning of the sermon? I would suggest that Jesus' next statement, these words of mine, helps to frame that he is pointing to the entire sermon, going back all the way to Matthew 5, 1, where Jesus began to open his mouth and speak, and that's when the words began. And so this now looks back at all that has been spoken up to this point. Next, notice that the audience has shifted slightly. As Jesus closes out his teaching, he changes the reference from that second person, you, that he has been using throughout the sermon, throughout most of the sermon, when addressing who? His disciples, right? Those who had gathered closely. And and as we talked about early at the beginning, this is more than just the 12 disciples. This could have been as many as 70, 80, 90, 100. We know that he had many who were called his disciples. He had that inner circle of disciples. And so he's been addressing those who were gathered around him, whom were called his disciples, and he'd been using that you, that you, that you. Those, these are ones who have demonstrated repentance and a turning from sin. Those who claimed and said that they were his disciples, that they sought to follow him. But outside of that, all of these crowds had, gone, had come and sat down to hear this teaching. And so Jesus, here at the end, changes the address, changes the persons to whom he's addressing just ever so slightly. It still includes the disciples, but it now is everyone, everyone who hears these words of mine. This offer of entrance into the kingdom of heaven that we've been looking at has been extended to all. None who wish to enter, none who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of their sins will be refused entrance. Just in case the crowds thought that what has been said was an exclusive offer, that it was, they themselves were somehow excluded from the offer of salvation, it's now made clear that this offer is extended to all who hear and will believe. But Jesus is going to go on to make it very clear that belief is more than words and it is more than just hearing. Belief, true belief is manifested In fruit or in actions. But here we see that broad call of the gospel and the offer of entrance into the kingdom of heaven and eternal life. Conversely, though, while the offer of salvation is made to all, and this is no surprise, all who hear do not repent, do they? Not all who hear the message in that day or in this repent in faith and demonstrate that belief through obedience. Because of this, they are refused entrance into the kingdom of heaven. They will instead enter through the broad gate that leads to weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's an important point here, by the way, to be observed when Jesus said these words of mine, there in verse 24. Notice that Jesus is once again equating obedience to his words with obedience to God. Jesus has already claimed, back in verse 21, that he is the eternal judge. He has claimed divine status already. He is the one who will determine who will enter and who will be refused entrance into the kingdom of God. And so here, Jesus once again claims his divine origin, his messianic origin, by requiring obedience to his words in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. So with this in mind, look with me at the parable Jesus then begins to provide. We're presented with two types of people. Both hear the message, both hear the teaching, but they have two separate responses. One hears and obeys, the other hears but does not heed. Jesus says that all who hear may be compared to, to one of these two types of persons. In other words, there's not a third category. There are one of these two types of persons for those who have heard the message. Those who either heed and obey or those who do not. And Jesus starts with those and presents the one who obeys. And Jesus compares them here to a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. Wisdom is presented throughout Scripture. In fact, we read it this morning in Deuteronomy 32. Wisdom is presented throughout Scripture, especially in the Proverbs and elsewhere, as living in accordance with God's instructions and submission to God's will. We see here the use of wise living to survive in this world as an analogy for wise living before God to survive the trials of this life and ultimately, most importantly, the final judgment. In verse 25, the rains come down, the floods come up, the winds blow, and they fall upon the house. Jesus uses a play on words here rather that you may pick up on. You notice that everything that comes falls. The wind falls upon it, the rain falls upon it, the floods fall upon the house. Everything fell, but the house stood. He's drawing a stark contrast between what is taking place. Everything continues to fall, and he paints a vivid picture of the house standing. This word for fall, by the way, is a a little bit more subtle than the word for fall that we'll see with the foolish man. Here, it's the idea of not being moved downward. In other words, not in the slightest bit did this house move as if it was even going to fall. It stood firm. It stood unscathed. This house built upon the rock does not falter in the slightest. Now, the language of storms and rain is common when describing trials or even judgment. The floodwaters came upon the earth in the days of Noah as judgment. Peter uses the terminology of floods to describe what the last day will be like. So, one of the questions we need to ask is what time frame is Jesus here describing? When, when do, are these floods going to come? When is the rain going to come? When is the wind going to come? Is it a description of eternal judgment? Is it a description of the trials of this life? Well, before we answer that, I wanna point out that the emphasis in this passage is not on the storm. We're gonna talk about the storm, but the emphasis is not on the storm. And it's metaphorical or somehow some allegorical meaning. Now the emphasis here is on the house and the builders. So we want to be careful that we're not storm chasers here. We're not going to chase down some fine meaning or try to discover some unique meaning that differentiates. The wind means this type of judgment. The the. Flood means this type of judgment and the rain means this type of judgment. No, we're looking at this in its totality. Whatever the wind, the rain, and the floods are, it's a singular description. What we want to see is how they relate and affect the primary subject, which here is the wise man and the house that he built. Now, as we observe this passage I believe the most natural interpretation is to view this rain, the winds, and the flood themselves as descriptions of the trials and the difficulties of this life. In fact, this has been the interpretation since the earliest days or years of the early church. James uses similar language when he talks about having faith in times of trial there in James 1. He says, You need to believe and not doubt. Why? So that you will not be like the surf of the sea, which is blown and tossed by the wind, right? And so even though these are going to be, and when we see this reference to the wind, the rain, and the storm, it's a reference to the trials of this life, we would be remiss if we did not see here a view toward the end as well. Why do I say that? Well, because Jesus still uses future language of will be. He will be like. He doesn't say they are like, but they will be like. Jesus describes in this brief statement the totality of the event. Yes, he looks at the storms when it came, but his focus here is what happened after the storms came. What remains? And in doing this, he once again places himself as judge. So the trials and tribulations of this life may rightly be understood here as the wind, the rains, and the floods that fell upon the house, but there is a final assessment of the man and his house. And that final assessment is at the end, has an eschatological focus, an end times focus, that judgment of God. As we've been reminded all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, this life is not all there is. There is a final evaluation of Both houses, did they stand or did they fall? And it's in this estimation that I believe we see that description of the final judgment where every person's works will be tested to see if any remain. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writing to Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 speaks of the judgment that all men will go through. There in verse 9, he says, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Likewise, turn with me just one, chapter, one uh, book earlier to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3. Here in 1 Corinthians 3, we see a similar description, similar analogy to us being God's building, His workmanship. We see the importance of building on the right foundation, that foundation being Jesus Christ Himself, just as we see here in Matthew 7 that we're looking at this morning. Jesus is the rock, His words are the foundation. We see terminology of a wise builder. We see being wise and careful in how we build on the foundation laid by Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which has been given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if a man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident for the day. That is a specific day, looking toward the day of judgment. The day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. Those who found, whose foundation is Christ, the rock, will enter the kingdom. Those who build on any other foundation will not. But what we see in both of these passages is a reference to a time of judgment, a time of evaluation, of looking at what has been built and evaluating what remains. This time will come for believer and unbeliever alike. Here, returning back to Matthew 7, Jesus paints a vivid picture for us. As the rain pours down, causing these floods, and this flood, by the way, it's the term for a flash flood. The climate in Israel is normally very dry. It's rocky. It's craggy. Uh, and so it would not have been uncommon, at least in many parts of Israel, for when the rain comes, it may come higher up in the higher elevations, and it would channel down. The drier ground would not be able to soak up the water, and it's rocky as well. And so rather than absorbing the water, it begins to all funnel together into... This flash flood that comes rushing down, wiping out anything in its path. It was very dangerous to travel certain routes at certain times of year because of these flash floods that came out of nowhere. The rain may be miles in the distance, and yet the flood all of a sudden is upon you because it's been funneled right down on top of you. And so this would have been very vivid in their minds. They would have understood. There's, it's this sudden, unexpected danger that it would appear. It would have been common in and around Israel where the dry mountainous terrain would do this. That torrent racing down, breaking apart, destroying everything in its past path. Even, and even where the waters were less violent, if it was essential that a house be built on a solid foundation so that when the rains finally did reach your house or you, it wouldn't, the foundation wouldn't quickly erode with the rain or the flooding. But note too in this analogy The house is being struck not only at its base by the flood, but the entire house is being assaulted by the wind as well. It's slamming against it, some translations read. Note that the storm is testing every aspect of the integrity of the house looking for weaknesses. Yet through it all, the house built on the rock stood firm. So now we have two questions to answer. First, what is the rock? Kind of already referenced it. Paul makes it explicit there in 1 Corinthians 3, doesn't he? The rock, the foundation, is Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 32, which we read this morning, God is called the rock. That rock is called a redeemer. We look forward to the redeemer. It was an allusion in reference to Christ. And when we think of Christ and what it is that constitutes this rock and this foundation upon which we build, what is it? It is his words, his teaching, his character. So that's the rock, but how do we build on the rock? How are we to apply this? How do we do this? I mean, that's a great picture. It's a great illustration, but how do we do this? How do we build on that rock? What does it look like? Well, certainly for starters, it means ordering one's life, one's thoughts, one's actions according to Christ's blueprint for godly living. It means to follow the instructions God has provided in Scripture, which means that we need to carefully study. We need to carefully put into practice what Jesus has taught. And if you're struggling on where to begin, Sermon on the Mount is a great place. Return to the Beatitudes right there at the beginning in chapter 5 and begin analyzing your life through the lens of each one of those statements. How are you doing mourning over sin? When you sin, what is your response? Do you quickly move past it? Just offer up a quick, oh, please forgive me. Or do you mourn over it? Do you, you come near to tears at times over it? Do you long to be freed from this body of sin? If you struggle to cultivate a mourning over sin, then you do not understand the gravity of sin, nor do you understand well enough the sacrifice of Christ and God's hatred towards sin and what awaits sinners. It's the gravity of how much God hates sin that helps us hate sin the same way. The only way you're going to understand that and begin to comprehend that is to study scripture. Look at God's response to sin. Look at his response to what we would consider small sins. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they got overzealous and they skipped past God's instructions on how to worship, right there at the beginning of Israel's history, and they go Go in to offer before the Lord, it says, strange incense. Simply put, they didn't follow the instruction. What did God do? Struck them dead. That seems severe. But God is teaching and illustrating for us that he will be worshipped the way he says he will be worshipped. To do anything else, to do it any other way, is disobedience. Uzzah joins in helping bring the ark and trying to return the ark to Jerusalem. But they don't follow the instructions. What were the instructions? The instructions were there was to only be carried on poles. And it was never to be touched. Well, they're going along. They've got it in the back of a cart. And they hit some ruts in the road. It goes off, set, off kilter. Oh, no, the ark's going to fall in the dirt and the mud. Surely I can't allow something that special to fall in the dirt and the mud, right? So I'm doing a good thing. And protecting God's holy ark. He reaches out to steady it. What does God do? He strikes him dead. Well, how? Why? Why would God do that? Because Uzzah disobeyed God. He did not take seriously enough what God said do not touch it. Adam and Eve. I mean, it was just a bite, it's just a taste. I mean, look at all the death and the destruction, and the wickedness that has entered the world, surely that was too severe. Look at how hard life is, surely that was too severe. No, that severity is just beginning to highlight for us how seriously God takes sin. How are you doing at cultivating poverty of spirit? What are you doing to protect and safeguard yourself against pride and spiritual self-assurance? What are you doing to make sure you don't become comfortable thinking you've arrived, or you've obtained some spiritual level or plateau? How are you doing at being gentle and merciful? How are you doing with praying those for, who hurt you or attack you? One of the sad realities of our current times is that it's become a virtue to be offended not to pray for the person who has offended you, not to pray for the person attacking, not to proclaim the gospel, and certainly not to practice gentleness toward them. This may be especially true here in America toward our political leaders. We may disagree with actions that are taken and even call them out as ungodly, but are you also taking the time to pray for those leaders? Or in your circle of friends and in your own life, are you encouraging frustration, anger, and bitterness toward them? Note two, with regard to the wise builder, there is a comfort and assurance in these verses. There is an assurance for the wise builder, the one who has been redeemed, who believes, and has demonstrated that belief through their obedience. If you follow the instructions Christ has laid out, then you can take confidence that you will weather the storms of this life and stand boldly at the day of judgment. It goes along well with Romans eight thirty-eight through 39. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other creature will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is nothing in this life that can assault or assail you that will separate you from God's love if you followed his blueprint. Instead, if 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 you've built that House, following his blueprint, upon a sure foundation, upon the rock. You can prepare yourself to hear the words of Christ Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. So, how are you doing at storm proofing your life? As a disciple of Jesus Christ, we are told storms are going to come. Being a Christian does not mean life gets easier. In fact, in some ways, quite honestly, it gets harder. Now there's a unique peace and assurance that comes in the midst of this because we're given an eternal perspective. It's like being fitted with the correct prescription with glasses. Suddenly you can see the world in a whole new way. Only we see eternity in a whole new way. And so it gives us a whole new appreciation. So while this life gets harder, enduring it gets easier. But we're told these storms are going to come and we're told according to James, they're for our good, for our benefit. God does strike and brings these trials for our good because he wants us to find the weaknesses out in our building. When you are struggling, when you find yourself struggling against sin because of a trial you're going through, praise the Lord that he's taken the time to show that to you. There will be trials and difficulties. So how are you preparing for them? Are you waiting until they come? Daniel and his three friends, it says they set their heart or set their mind before they had ever entered Babylon to follow God and follow his instructions. Before they ever arrived in Babylon, before they were ever handed over to the guard, before they were ever placed in a situation where they had to choose Whether to eat the king's choice food that was sacrificed to idols, they had set their mind. It will be much, much, much harder to weather the storm if you do not prepare beforehand. So, are you doing that? Like so many of the homes destroyed by Hurricane Michael, many persons are focused on the bare minimum requirements for obedience. Or they cut corners, they don't follow God's blueprint explicitly. the result will be that they will either collapse or are severely damaged by the storm. Paul in 1 Corinthians makes it clear that even a true believer, if they do not build correctly upon this foundation, everything will be burned up, though they will be saved as if they had passed through fire. There will be the hint of smoke upon them as they pass into eternity. But if you will observe Jesus' teaching, if you will pour your efforts in understanding and applying Jesus' words and follow the blueprint he has provided, then you can be assured that you will weather these storms. Do not miss the assurance that is offered here. There is no doubt as to the ability to withstand the tribulations of this life if you build your life upon the rock, following his instructions, which begins with faith in Christ and obedience to his teaching. Jesus offers certainty, he offers comfort, and he offers rest. And as you walk along the narrow and difficult path, storms are going to come. They will be hard. They'll vary in intensity in your life. You may get scratched, you may get bruised, but you will weather it and not be blown down. And as a result, you will reach the narrow gate and enter into the presence of the Lord. as we've already observed, there's another type of person, and sadly, this other type of person is far more common. Like the aftermath of Hurricane Michael that saw the obliteration of so many homes and businesses, so it will be in the last day. In the evaluation of all these different homes that were built on all these different foundations, the lives of many will be found on that broad path, choosing to ignore Jesus' teaching, and as a result, they will not weather the storm. The house will collapse upon them. This other group of persons are compared to the foolish man. The foolish man in the parable builds his house upon the sand. And as a result, the rains fall, the floods come, the winds blow, and it fell. This word for fell is akin to destruction. In both of these, where is the man? He's in the midst of the home, right? You don't stand outside in the storm. Everything he has done has fallen in upon him. And notice Jesus' final observation, great was its fall. Sam may be compared to trusting in anything other than Jesus' words to enter the narrow gate. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. We're told there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby You can, will, or must be saved. Save Jesus Christ, the foundation, the rock. Any other teaching that one follows may rightly be considered this sand. No matter how good it may sound, no matter how close it may sound to the truth, Compared to the house built on the rock, this house cannot stand. In the final judgment, there is nothing left. As Osborne notes, unless the life is changed, no salvation has occurred, and at the final judgment, ultimate destruction will be the verdict. But what does the sand look like so that we can be aware? One example of the sand would be our current focus on building self worth and self esteem. Rather, Jesus teaches us that poverty of spirit and humility. Considering others is more important than ourselves. Another example of this sand, this other teaching that some follow, is buying into the world's focus on money or wealth that we looked at several weeks ago. There's nothing wrong with wealth in and of itself, but it's never to be the pursuit of a true disciple of Christ. It's certainly not to be the trust or the confidence or the assurance. It should be secondary, never an encumbrance or entanglement for the believer. Other examples, and there's so many, but it could be any form of teaching that encourages hatred towards others instead of love. Whether political, racial, geopolitical, or financial, Jesus' words and his sermons are clear love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. So, which are you practicing? Which are you encouraging? What are you reading? What are you filling your mind with? What are you following? Jesus here provides the evidence and test of true faith, the foundation of one's life corroborated by the fruit of obedience. You see, there's no such thing as a fruitless Christian. There may be times where it's not a lot of fruit, there may be times where all you can see are the buds that are beginning to start. but there will always be in the life of a true believer and disciple of Jesus Christ some fruit. There is no such thing as a fruitless believer or a believer who does not obey as the general character and tone of their life. Do believers disobey? Yes, they do. So what do they do? They repent. They repent, they come back to the Father. Jesus' final words Really strikes something of an ominous tone here, don't they? The, The final clause, especially great was its fall. What a sad and avoidable event. If only that person had taken heed and had obeyed. It's like all those lives lost during Hurricane Michael. If only corners hadn't been cut. If only the instructions and the blueprints had been perfectly followed, their life would not have been forfeit. And here, they need not have ended in ruin and destruction destined for eternity of pain and suffering. In the silence that follows this final statement, there exists an unstated question. Who are you are you the wise builder or are you the fool now we automatically assume that we're like the wise builder don't we because we have such a humble view of ourselves no we read stories we whenever we watch something or read a, a novel we associate ourselves with the hero of the story don't we we put ourselves in their shoes and we're never the villain We automatically assume that here we are the wise builder we quickly associate ourselves with the one who is building upon the rock but if I were to ask you to carefully privately evaluate your life just this week would your life really demonstrate that of a wise builder who doesn't take corners who followed the blueprint explicitly Would your life really demonstrate the wisdom of the builder who built on the foundation of Christ and his words? Or will we instead find a builder who did cut corners, looked for the easy path? There will come a day of testing when every person's works will be measured. Will you be standing? How much of what you built will be standing? That's what Paul moves into warning the Corinthians about. How much of it's even going to be standing? Okay, you've got the right foundation. You started building. How much of it is wood, hay, and stubble? And if there's any doubt at all, then repent. Repent where you have been negligent to obey. Remember, you have a loving Father who is quick, gracious, desiring to forgive. So repent while it's still today. And if you never considered this day, and the judgment that awaits. Then to you I say, the same thing is repent. But here you turn from your sins and you call upon the Lord for the first time as your only hope, the only one who can save you from the fiery wrath and the judgment to come at the hands of a just and righteous God who will not tolerate sin. If you've never placed faith in Christ or are trusting in anything other than the blood of Christ as the payment for the debt of your sins, then repent today that you may begin calling out to God as Father. Jesus' final words would have fallen heavy upon the crowd. This is it. This is the close to the Sermon on the Mount. Great was its fall. As his words came to an end and the figurative dust settled, the crowds sat stunned. The text says, in amazement. Jesus is done speaking. Matthew provides commentary on this. He records that they were amazed at his teaching and his authority. The grammar here indicates that this amazement did not quickly dissipate As they left that day, walking down that mountainside, returning to their workplaces, their homes, whatever else was going to fill that day, the amazement continued. It did not quickly wear off. Now what was it that made this teaching so amazing and so full of power and authority? Well first, Jesus' teaching was not simply ethical like the other scribes and leaders. It was messianic. It was Christological, it was eschatological, it was hopeful, it looked toward the kingdom of heaven. Jesus throughout the Sermon on the Mount, especially at the end, presented himself as the divine judge, the one who grants and refuses entrance into the kingdom of God. The nature of these words and the fact that he has equated his words with God's words, that would have been unthinkable by the scribes and the Pharisees. People had never heard such teaching. Additionally, Jesus' message was not simple morality, but it was focused on belief and relationship to God as Father and a product of that belief, not a set of works to earn faith. It certainly had to do with obedience, but that obedience became a product of belief. It wasn't something that was done to earn belief. This was a subtle but radical change to what they were used to hearing. Additionally, Jesus did not appeal to early scribal, earlier scribal authorities. He only appealed to previous scripture and his own words. That was it. That was the extent of his appeal. In fact, at the end, it's just his words. And the result was that the content and the nature of this teaching left his audience in stunned amazement. So let me ask, how does God's word and the study of his word impact you? Do you study it deep enough, well enough, thoroughly enough to be stunned and amazed? At the very least, do you marvel at God's goodness, his mercy, and his grace? Are you moved to action and motivated by what you see? Now I ask that question recognizing that amazement By itself is not enough. For many of the crowd, that amazement was not enough. Because more importantly, does that amazement affect your life? Or is your amazement simply excitement at a performance? It's fun, it's entertaining to watch, like a sporting event or a Broadway show. It may even stay in your mind for a while, continuing to surprise or amaze you. But it's not obedience. Amazement is not obedience. It is good and right to be amazed at the teaching of Christ, but it cannot stop there. Do not mistake amazement for obedience. The crowd who called out, crucify him, were previously amazed. Along the same lines as we saw two weeks ago, and as we were reminded this morning, do not mistake activity by itself for obedience. Being active is not the same thing as being obedient. There are a great many people who are active in this world, whether it be rescues, service projects, other philanthropic opportunities, feeding the homeless. Remember that just being active is not the same thing as being obedient. Obedience flows from the heart. It flows out of a desire to worship, to obey, to present your body as a living and holy sacrifice, your reasonable, logical, right manner of service. Doing all those things, feeding the homeless, participating in service projects and rescues, doing those things can be a means of serving and obeying God. Don't miss me or misunderstand. It absolutely can be a means of serving God. But only when it's coupled with belief and a desire to honor and worship God alone, make much of him and little of yourself. If your purpose in serving is to draw attention to yourself, just stop doing it repent, pray that the Lord would humble you, and then go about doing what he has instructed out of a desire to serve him. It's a matter of faith and motives. Why do you do what you do? Because if you're, not, if you're doing it for any other reason than to glorify God and bring him honor, then you're building on the sand. You're building with Wood hay and stubble. We are called to obedience, and as a result, there must be activity in our lives, but not all that activity is obedience, when it is not done out of love for God and from pure motives. Jesus' words here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they really leave us with no doubt to his claims. He is claiming to be Lord. He's claiming to be the divine judge. On the basis of this claim, then, Jesus is either Lord, he's either a liar, or he's a little lunatic, as C.S. Lewis pointed out. Because he's made it impossible to deny that what he's claiming. He is claiming that he is the divine judge, that he is Lord and he is sovereign, he is the king. He's either right, he's either lying, or he's crazy. This returns us to the theme of Matthew's presentation of Christ. Matthew's presenting the king. That's who we worship. That's why we're here this morning. This text demands that we choose to submit our lives to Jesus as Lord. There is no Christian life that is not submitted to him as Lord. So let us stand amazed, but let us determine to put that amazement into obedience as we seek to put into action Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. So we desire to be faithful servants, faithful stewards, faithful citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the teaching that you've preserved through your Holy Spirit through so many generations that we might study and understand and hear your words to us. Thank you that you've left the blueprint left the means for us to live, that we might have that peace, that comfort, that assurance in this life that whatever the storm, we can weather it, not because of anything we can do, but that our confidence is that in obeying you and in following you, you are our shield, you are our protector, you are our comforter. Lord, we thank you that you love us and care for us. Thank you for our adoption as sons and our transfer of citizenship into the kingdom of heaven. May we go forth in obedience. May we be salt and light. May persons, when they see us, recognize us as citizens of the kingdom of heaven through the fruit of our lives. May we build upon the rock. In your name, amen.